Hello, everyone. Welcome to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. A common thread across education is the need for high-quality teacher development options. However, the one-size-fits-all options available from national speakers and professional conferences potentially ignore the unique needs of teachers and students in a particular district, community, or city. Today, we will learn about a successful nonprofit organization devoted to teacher development and, I would say, empowerment in New York City. My guest today is Lynette Gostafero, who is the CEO of Teaching Matters, a nonprofit organization in the city that has partnered with over 1,300 teachers in 90 schools to increase teacher effectiveness, particularly in schools serving underserved areas. The mission of Teaching Matters is to help the most effective teachers become empowered to lead their peers. Under her leadership, Teaching Matters has expanded its programming and quadrupled its reach into schools. Lynette is an experienced educator who has also worked in both profit and nonprofit sectors. For instance, in addition to being a classroom teacher, Guastafaro worked as a senior management consultant for Price Waterhouse Coopers. She holds a BA degree from Williams College and an MBA from Columbia. Lynette, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I suppose before we get started, we should say that we both share cool names, but we are actually not affiliated with one another. Um, (laughs) So I think that's an interesting um, side note to this podcast. However, I think we're both very committed to understanding ways in which teachers can be empowered. So our discussion will center around that um, and and we'll celebrate the fact that we both have good names. Um, So I guess to start with, can you explain what the mission of your Teaching Matters organization is and maybe talk somewhat about the scope for listeners that, you know, maybe don't live in New York City and wouldn't have been exposed uh, to um, what you do. Sure. So the the vision and quote mission of Teaching Matters is purely focused on ensuring that, you know, no matter what your zip code, that you have equitable access to great and effective instruction. And we serve uh, the the entirety of New York City, which is seven, you know, which is a very very large system of seventeen hundred schools. It's bigger than the majority of states, mm-hmm. and we also work with. Uh, some states outside of New York, Tennessee, Arkansas, and a few other places where we're working virtually. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I know we're going to get into some of the details as we go along, but in general, can you talk about the types of services that you offer to school districts? Yeah. So what when we, we are partnering directly with schools and then also with systems specifically to, again, improve the quality of instruction for kids in urban, um, in urban schools. And so the the focus is on sort of three kind of key prongs that we think are critical. There is one area which is looking at those really high needs content areas that make a difference. So we have a whole model around early reading. We mm-hmm. have a focus on kind of there's some there's math and, and, and teaching writing. But the other component of this is teaching schools to sustain the work and work and partnering with the school to develop teachers that can lead on the continuous improvement of instruction and co- and kind of coach into that. So we also focus on developing teachers as leaders mm-hmm. in the work. Uh, and the third prong, which is really important, is just that schools use data well in this work and that they're data-driven and evidence-based in the decisions that they make. So we're developing schools in those th- – working with teachers to develop their knowledge and skill set in those three areas. Mm-hmm. What, one of the things when I was reviewing uh, the organization's website that, that stood out to me is it, it was clear that you were sort of taking a train-the-trainers type of approach and trying to develop – 
not just the substantive skills for teachers, but also the leadership skills to be able to spread that knowledge amongst their peers, which which I think is 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 novel and important um, in terms of really building up an entire school. It, it is. It's very important. And because we're working with schools in different places, so so we might we're in some schools where you know, one of the challenges of kids who are living in underserved areas and their schools is they tend to have schools that, that experience a lot of teacher turnover. The goal is to go in and partner with the teachers that have the, co- the content and pedagogical knowledge and develop them to kind of lead other teachers. But there are schools where, for whatever reason, there there really has to be some work done on the ground to, to really increase you know, the knowledge base on teaching reading. Mm-hmm. What are the key research-based moves? And so we part, we'll partner with schools over a period of years. In the beginning, we may be focused on developing those pieces. And then we're targeting um, th- those people who have mastered that to be able to kind of lead the work of others. And so when you're leading others, it's not just about showing them the practices. That's really important. But it's there's, a, there's also work around how do you um, make decisions about improving? How do you figure out where the problems are? How do you look at the research to identify new solutions? And then how do you know that you're succeeding? So this idea of continuous improvement and is a strand of our work. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's an exciting strand because um, that to me is how you keep experienced teachers in the work in the first place. And, and it also, um, so at Ohio University, our national accreditor is the Higher Learning Commission. And for a number of years, we were actually on a, on a pathway called AQIP, or Academic Quality Improvement Program, which is a continuous improvement approach. And so I say that because I, I think you're absolutely right that the, the loop between assessing and then making good decisions from data is not often closed in the assessment process. And no. really what you're talking about is being smart about the entire life cycle of that process, um, which I think is great. I mean, I think that's that's unfortunately not talked about nearly enough. I mean, oftentimes when we hear about assessment or improvement practices, we don't hear about that loop getting closed and it really makes it meaningful for everyone. So I, I think... Um, to turn back to the history of the organization, as I was reading about your history on your website, you were founded by Elizabeth Rohayton. Can you talk a little bit about sort of how the organization was founded initially, um, which predated you, obviously, and then yeah. how it's evolved over the years, um, you know, as time has went on? I th- the, the, the core mission that all kids, no matter what their zip code is, that they should have a, a access to effective instruction and the recognition that, that in the United States we are not providing equitable access to all kids mm-hmm. is the founding principle of the organization. The, the specific focus of where we're trying to close the gap evolves over time, mm-hmm. but that is the, the heart of the organization, which means that we are always targeting um, schools which are higher poverty, and, and working with underserved kids. And that's in part because of the challenges that they face with respect to, um, you know, attracting teachers and then developing those teachers and, and, and ensuring that they stay in the work. So Elizabeth Rowaton and her, uh, her husband, Felix Rowaton. Felix Rowaton was, um, he's known in, this, from in the 70s as, as the guy that saved New York City because he was able to bring the government and the unions together to, to uh, when you know when basically when they said you know New York you can go bankrupt or we don't you know New York can we don't mm-hmm. care that New York is insolvent, he was able to uh, kind of bring the civic leaders together to make that change. And so this was a family that has always had a very strong civic 
um, mission. And Elizabeth wrote and felt very, very strongly about the the role of teachers in the lives of children and how how important that was and that there had to be an organization that was thinking strategically with one foot sort of in the system, but one foot specifically outside the system, mm-hmm. who was able to partner with philanthropists, with um, folks in New York that wanted to really support the schools. And she wanted an organization that would say, yeah, yes, we'll do that, but we're taking a particular approach of improving instruction and teaching because that's what we think is important. Mm-hmm. I noticed that you uh, do what looks to me to be an annual prize in her name. Um, yes. W- what is that prize? And, and can you, you maybe talk about some examples of recent winners um, and what that prize represents in terms of oh, that? Sh- sure, absolutely. So the, the, we, the prize is the Elizabeth Rowiton Prize for schools where teaching matters. And it's a competitive prize. We have hundreds of schools all over the New York Tri-State area that submit applications. And what the, the, the winning schools have sort of a, a, a kind of a, a, a key combination. There, there is, there's a real, they're able to demonstrate a set of practices that really elevate teachers as sort of leaders in instruction and innovation. By the way, when this prize was started, the idea of teacher leaders was less common and there, the structures were not as in place as they are now. So now mm-hmm. we're seeing, it's pretty common across schools to have people who are teachers who are in the classroom and also leading other teachers right. who have particular that that those structures honestly weren't in place when the when the prize started so schools that were um developing in you know initiatives so maybe it's a new math model but they really were they were thinking about the teachers in the adaptive process of of making sure that their initiatives were successful, that they were positioning teachers to lead on that work and meaningfully engaging teachers in the future improvement of the school, and they could really prove it. And they had they had models and methods that could be easily replicated and that weren't super expensive. And so mm-hmm. the goal was to shine a light on schools that may have been in many underserved areas, but and, and what we're doing, we saw fantastic sort of work, but we're not often recognized um, often because, you know, they, they sometimes they weren't getting the same kinds of test score gains because they were starting, you know, significantly lower than others, but that there was real innovative work going on in the building mm-hmm. and that the teachers were leading that work and that, you know, this is a place, this was a place where teachers were dying to teach. Let's just put it like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, interestingly, uh, last year we had some guests on the podcast that did some uh, comparative studies trying to understand, you know, where the United States teacher system as a whole is at relative to other countries. And one of the things that they pointed out that relates to what you just said is that in the U.S., it's rare that you find um, sort of career steps for teachers so that they understand what they can do if, if they you know, want something beyond only being a classroom teacher, but do not want to rise into administration where there, you know, are fewer positions, these middle level sort of leading other teachers type of initiatives is something that is unique, you know, across the country, and they're just starting to rise up. And the fact that you all are highlighting it, or, you know, providing an an avenue for that through the award is really important, because you have to have that recognition that this is something that matters and is important. So that's really great. If you didn't have those kinds of roles in your school, you you, you sort of need not apply for this award. Yeah. Um, And on top of that, we also have this work we're doing around, it's it's focusing on developing teacher leaders, uh, it's, it's, we, it's a micro-credentialing initiative. Mm-hmm. We 
with Tennessee and Arkansas. But and and it's a methodology of developing people where you know a lot of professional learning at the system level often is you know bringing a bunch of people into a room and right. and training them because I mean there's a reason for that everybody knows it's not the best way to do it but when you're working at scale it's really hard to go in and do the deep on-site coaching that yeah. that you need to do however we've been exploring this way of and 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 scaling this competency-based method of really getting explicit about what are the key competencies of teacher leadership and what do they look like when they're demonstrated in the in the classroom or in the school. And mm-hmm. we've set up a model, which is which our micro-credentialing initiative around teacher leadership pathways, so that when systems want to create a path, like what you just said, career pathways, mm-hmm. where people are moving from the classroom and now they're going to move into these teacher leader roles, we have set up a professional learning model, which not only lets them learn the skills and then demonstrate them and get feedback, but if they succeed, move into these roles. So the system has the benefit of saying, people moving into these roles, we can speak with evidence to specific demonstrations of key skills that we think matter. Mm-hmm. And teachers can also be introduced uh, into, some of these, into some of these practices before they're thrown into the job. And it and, and it's sort of a it's it's a really nice I think way of being explicit for the system to be really transparent. You know, everyone's been teaching in a classroom, but what do leadership skills look like when you have one foot in the classroom and yeah. one foot outside of the classroom? And that hasn't been articulated well in a lot of places. You know, there are standards out there. There's a lot of advice on this is what the skills are, but really, what does it? How do I know when I'm doing it? What what does what does it look like in practice? And to have someone who can give you feedback into your practice while you're doing your own work, not some sort of homework or exercise, but literally demonstrating the practice and getting feedback. This is the model that we think professional learning needs to move move towards. Yeah. So it's really fascinating what you're describing. And, and I totally agree with what you're saying that this needs to become more routinized across, you know, across districts. I mean, this is an important, this is important to elevating the entire profession and allowing the profession to continue to grow and and develop. Uh, But, but the question that I have is when you go into a new district um, with your micro credentialing system and, and really your entire philosophy on, on how you will develop teachers, including their leadership skills, so part of that has to be, I would guess, um, helping the district understand a process through which they can have, you know, language to talk about these roles that teachers would have in these leadership yes. positions. But I would assume it's also a culture change. Is, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, so so we, this is what we've got. One prong of what we have is really sort of a technology and a process to really develop people's skills in this kind of way. So, so that's what we're providing districts. But dif- districts come to the table in different places. So mm-hmm. in some places, they've created these roles, and they're talking about them already, and they're excited about them, but they just need them, they need it to be more tangible. And they, in other places, they um, maybe they haven't really defined the roles yet. And that work has to be done. I mean, you first mm-hmm. have to, you know, the idea, teacher leadership, as you've, as you've just, you know, well pointed out, is a real shift in kind of the ownership of instruction. And you know, the idea that teachers can work together to lead, like doctors, mm-hmm. teachers uh, really should be positioned to lead the work. And, you know, not in isolation, but working in tandem with with principals and school leaders. We, we need to make sure that we're all rowing the boat in the, in the same direction. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the people who really have the knowledge on the day-to-day about like how to work with a group of people and make those key shifts like hey the data said last week so we have this problem 
what are we going to do? Well, that's, the principal's not the person to answer that. There has to be a teacher in the room figuring yeah. out that move. And then they have to do that together. So we have to set up schools where people have the freedom to do, the, the people can do that. You know, the other choices that we've seen is when people go in with, not that we don't want a common curricula, but like lockstep, you know, everyone has to be on this page at this minute kinds of curricula because they haven't actually built the capacity for the, the, the instructional leaders to make that kind of adaptive change to what kids need in the building. It's developing people to do that work and positioning them to do that work, which mm-hmm. is key. Very good. Um, so you've kind of talked about uh, some of the success stories already. And, but, but before we leave the micro-credentialing topic, you, you mentioned uh, a little bit previously that you, you have programs related to writing, literacy, assessment, early reading, and math. Are these sort of folded into your micro-credentialing or are those separate initiatives that Teaching Matters has? So the, the work that we're doing at the system level is to partner with systems to really uh, support them in putting these kinds of roles in place. And we have sets of competencies and, mm-hmm. and systems can, not all competencies are necessary. So, so systems can work with us to identify which ones are key and align them to their priorities. So it's teacher leadership. Uh-huh. The work we have, for example, in early reading matters the work we're doing around developing content knowledge is currently still at the school level. It's a school partnership. Mm-hmm. And in that case, we have, um, we're really developing, um, so the short answer is, is eventually we will probably be able to do that at scale, the mm-hmm. way we're talking about. But the way we do it now is that we, we find that to really, those programs are accountable to moving outcomes for kids. And so we hold ourselves accountable to that by working with the whole school I'm working with every kindergarten, first and second grade teacher in the building to make sure the kids get three successive years of effective instruction. And that's not, quote, a competency-based micro-credentialing approach. That's really working at the school level to get the, all, this, the, you know, all the systems at the school level and teachers on the same boat. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really us playing that teacher leader role, frankly, and bringing in a lot of supports as well. Different from helping a system to have teachers that can lead on any initiative. Right. So the way that you've described um, collectively the portfolio of options that Teaching Matters has, it, it sounds very dynamic. And so there, I'm guessing that you have different approaches across schools and across districts very commonly. So can you characterize in some sense, you know, sort of what your funding model is um, relative to the partners that you work with? And, yeah. and I ask that question in the context, if there, you know, if there's a teacher or a principal or uh, a superintendent, yeah, 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 how do they go about doing that? Yeah. So, so our work is uh, a combination of foundation supported um, and then also schools that are opting in to mm-hmm. um, bring us in and pay for services. And it's, it's an intentional combination. So foundation support is used in two different ways and private philanthropy, frankly, because we have a lot of New Yorkers that are really interested in, in moving the needle for kids and mm-hmm. our support the model and support schools to do the work. Um, the, the work around developing program models and the content and the materials is often foundation supported. Mm-hmm. And, and often, for example, uh, a foundation will support a scaling up of a program so that more schools can participate or that school that's, you know, we have a one model where schools are pay for part of it, but to, to, in order to be able to do the model completely, that has to be, it's, it's, it's like, you know, partially foundation supported, yeah. school supported. But so when schools contact us, they're calling us about a specific teacher development issue they have in one of these key areas. 
and they can they can decide to bring us in and pay for the service. Um, if they're in certain buckets of work, we can sometimes we can find uh, foundations that will support that mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. area because the foundation has an interest in that. So early reading, for example, you know, we were able to get a $3 million grant to scale this particular model of early reading. Now, we have schools that have come in and said, we really want to do this program. And the foundation's not covering those schools, but they're paying for it now. Right. So it's a pretty dynamic funding model. I, I would assume that there have there been instances where a district has come to you and brought a foundation partner with them to pay for your services? Um, yes, but more more likely it's the other way around. Yeah, that's what that, I would assume. Yeah. Typically it's that way. So, for example, um, and again, that has to be it has to be an area that we see the need. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important for both foundations um, and districts to be engaged in continuous improvement together. Um, you, you often have foundations that are interested in sort of like the next thing, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, they, and they're seeding R and D and, and experiments that are sometimes even further away than where the schools are currently thinking. Um, and that's fine. That's their role, but it's also incredibly important that the problems that we seek to solve in education come from the educators themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I do think this combination of bringing, of, of working with foundations to align uh, school improvement to where the challenges are that the schools are, they themselves identify is really important. I think the Gates Foundation is taking a really smart approach yeah. um, with that, and that's why they're doing it the way they're doing. Well, and 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 yeah, I mean the the point is is that problems are not invariant from one building to the next, let alone one city to the next, and. For solutions to be meaningful, they have to understand the local context, the local staff, the local students, right. et cetera. And, and there, there would be commonalities for sure, but um, sometimes, you know, in, uh, like in the grants that we have in higher education, you sometimes see offers for solutions to a problem that is very ill-defined, you know, right? And so, so finding that match is really important. So um, let's move on to talk about a few other things. So um, one of the things that we talk about pretty regularly on this podcast is the way that, you know, just obviously students that are in our schools now um, are, are different generationally than the students before. A lot of that has to do with technology, frankly, but, but that's not the only thing. Our culture is different. And one of the criticisms that I think uh, comes to um, a lot of the way that we have previously tried to develop teachers is that we sort of say, here's the new thing, learn it, and this is what's going to get you through. So technology training happens like this a lot, where teachers will get trained on some new technology solution uh, that will become outdated in a few years, but they're not told that up front. I hear you describing uh, a type of training approach that has much more longevity to it and the ability to adapt, because it's really more about the process of improvement rather than the thing to improve. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, and, and, it, and it, exactly. And in two ways. One, by for, for, for any organization to do sort of adaptive change, it's not about sort of like, here's your, here is your bucket of training materials and here's the thing you have to learn, right? It's, it's, it's positioning people throughout the organization that really understand the work and are positioned mm-hmm. to give feedback and lead on that work. We know that. We know that you have to get people engaged in change for it to actually take hold. And you can solve the right problem with the right solution, but if you haven't properly seated leadership through the organization, it will fail. Mm-hmm. And that's why great ideas that should have worked potentially have failed because they, you know, the, A, they, the, 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 the identification of the problem was not started with the folks at the table. And then the solutions and the answers were not refined or even 
developed with people who are doing the work. And so, the, you know, we in education, which is like the biggest, and I, I hope I'm not using words, this idea of technical versus adaptive change is big in the education literature, but it's just the idea that you, you give someone a lockstep solution to do something, it's going to fail if for certain kinds of complex challenges yeah. that are not just an easy solution like, okay, you know, the reason why education is not working is we just don't know this one way to do it. No, that's not the problem in education. These are really sticky, complex changes in even people's mindsets, you know, and like the big conversation going on in education now is how do, how do we work with teachers to change their mindsets with respect to the kids in front of them? You know, get to, to get really clear about their, some of the biases that they may have that they're bringing into the work. Mm -hmm. but you can't, you can't, you can't do top down training development yeah. on that. <laughs> I mean, you have to engage people in pretty, pretty deeply in understanding the, themselves, the kids, the work and changing, you know, and, and taking a, a rethinking what equity most of us got into education because we want to help kids, you know, across the spectrum. Um, we, that doesn't mean that a lot of us may not be getting in our own way sometimes, mm -hmm. right? So that's a lot of the work going on right now. And so this idea that you, you develop people in the work, you help the system identify people throughout leadership, throughout the building, and then you teach them how to continuously improve. That said, we, we also, again, focus on, quote, the meat and potatoes. Like, people have to be able to teach reading. You know what I mean? Like, so, so mm -hmm. people need, it's not, you cannot have an either or. You do have to give, especially in high needs, uh, you know, in, in neighborhoods where you have a lot of new teachers, you have to come to the table with specific teaching strategies that are going to help, you know, new teachers be successful fast. But you also have to empower the people in that room with the ability to continuously improve. Mm -hmm. You've got to do one with the other. Mm-hmm. So I want, to, I want to switch gears uh, since so we can get to a few other topics before uh, we run out of time. So your your bread and butter geographic area is is New York City, um, and I know that in 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 the city um, there there is there's a hotbed of charter schools that have risen up, uh, systems of charter schools, and that's true in other urban areas as well. But I think that in some ways New York City has been sort of the genesis of, of that uh, that movement, which has created its own set of, of conflict between the charter schools, the public schools, et cetera. How do, how do you work across to those different types of I don't know if they're philosophical approaches, but certainly the, the, the way that they're organized is different. Um, I would assume that you work with both types. Is that correct? We do. So we do actually have some charter schools in our um, portfolio of schools. Um, I would say that, so, that, you know, as charter schools are highly varied, as you know, mm -hmm. and there are sets of what we call, uh, there are charter schools that are part of their own network and have right. really strong um, you know, central groups that are helping them to continuously improve and they work together really effectively. Um, there's also lots of charter schools that are kind of out there on their own, mm -hmm. you know, and having to figure some of this. And so some of those are where they may need additional supports and ways of thinking about this work because they, most of those schools are literally just trying to, you know, focus on what's right in front of them. They don't have that body of folks that can think, you know, five steps ahead in the same way. So, so that would be the groups that we're working with in terms of our philosophy I would say, so we have a team at Teaching Matters, which is, um, which, which, which is some, some of the best educators I know, and they come from both worlds. Mm -hmm. um, and we have, met, we have quite a few folks that have come from very high-performing charters and have seen, you know, uh, 
people serving kids uh, at very high levels with respect um, to, you know, kid, kids who were typically, you know, the areas where people say you're not performing, well, they're, they're performing here, right? They're, they're seeing outcomes. And it's because they're in the different, the big difference between charters, in my view, and publics is that charters are able to control the, the variation in their environment mm-hmm. to a degree where they can really focus on specific moves that sometimes can be very challenging for public schools to put into place. Yeah. And you know, like everything from when those kids arrive in the building, they, you know, our public schools have kids arriving October, November, December. Um, there's a whole bunch of variables that public schools deal with that the charters don't. Now that said, I'm not throwing an apple, you know, I'm not throwing, but we can learn from charters because, because they've had to some degree the time to really focus on, in, on particular problems and have less variation. Mm -hmm. They often have developed some strategies. And so we, and many of those, don't work the same way in a public, but they can be adapted. And so right. all the, a lot of that work around data and how and how to work in teams and things like that are, are, are um, you know, are things that we've seen in charters that have worked really well. Mm-hmm. Very good. Um, last question. So as CEO of the organization, what, what do you think the future of Teaching Matters looks like and what would you like it to be five years down the road? I have been um, pleasantly surprised at the power of coaching and developing people online and at a distance. I have to tell you that I philosophically felt that the way that you worked with teachers in a building was side by side in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You could see the kids together. You you know, we had a very high touch approach and still and still do. But what we have found is that when we get really specific about the competencies that we want to support and we define them really clearly and we require that people demonstrate them in their own work, that there's a, an ability to scale and to do some things at a system level that I was that I that surprised even me, and so I think to go forward we're going to see that our work goes to more places, uh, is increasingly um, competency based and um, at a, at a distance and. I'm thinking very hard about how we empower teachers in that process mm-hmm. so that we're really figuring out in the future how teachers can be leading other teachers in these kinds of models um, and, and, and actually being the ones to deliver the coaching. We hope that everyone's thinking like that, but we're certainly lucky that you and your organization is thinking like that because um, I think that the idea of empowering teachers uh, – you know, is not only critical to the profession, but I think that it's critical to really meeting the needs of students now. I, I think that, you know, our, my daughter, who's in high school right now, um, has benefited from tremendous teachers. But but I think that this idea of, of continuous improvement, continuous adaptation based upon evidence is really critical for all the generations of learners going forward because the world changes so much more rapidly now than it did uh, when you and I were in school. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for having uh, us, me on and an opportunity to talk about the work. I really, I really appreciate your podcast. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure to get to meet you. And I hope that if you ever have um, things you'd like to talk about, that you'll reach back out and come back on. I will. My guest today was Lynette Gustaferro, CEO of the New York City-based Teaching Matters, an organization devoted to teacher development, not only within New York City, but as we learned across the nation. You can learn more about Teaching Matters, the organization, by visiting their website at teachingmatters.org. We will have that link in the text accompanying this podcast, so you don't have to worry about writing it down, but you can follow it and learn a lot about the great activities that they're doing. 
Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters. We are produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org slash listen. We're also available through all popular podcasting apps like Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply go to Facebook and search for Teaching Matters Podcast and send us your questions. Our audio engineer, as always, is Adam Rich. Our assistant producer is Katie Johnson. I'm Scott Titsworth. Thank you for listening. Thank you.